it take for us to go from a society in which justice is rejected, righteousness stands far away, and truth is lacking in the public square, to the kind of society that we all want and that God intends for us? Well, we're going to see in our sermon text this morning. Isaiah chapter 59, if you'll please take your copy of God's Word and turn there, Isaiah 59. In the second half of Isaiah, chapter 40 through 66, God's message to Israel has been, from chapter 40 through 48, salvation promised through God's servant. Then from chapter 49 through 55, salvation achieved through his suffering. And then chapter 56 through 66, salvation applied so that Israel fulfills God's original plan to be his servant to the nations. So on a personal level, let's just think about it this way. Here's the second half of Isaiah in a nutshell. Salvation promised in Christ. Salvation achieved through the death and resurrection of Christ. And then salvation applied to our messed up lives to transform us into what God originally intended us to be. Doesn't that sound good? Salvation applied to this messed up life. Isaiah 59, our sermon text for this morning, is right in the middle of the section in which God is applying the salvation that he has achieved to Israel. He is applying his salvation to merely external religious people so that they can become true people of faith as he intends them to be. So my prayer is that each one of us will apply this text to our life so that we can be God's servant in this world to everyone around us. So let's read Isaiah 59. And friends, let's remember that this is God's word. Isaiah 59, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity, Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas, they speak lies, they conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs, they weave the spider's web, and he who eats their eggs dies. And from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing, 
men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know. And there's no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Verse 9. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope for those, pardon me, we grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we're like dead men. We all growl like bears. We, we moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it's far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you. Our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, seeking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares and the uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment, so they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, for he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives, and a redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. Verse 21, And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit 
that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Isaiah 59 is actually addressing a complaint that was raised in chapter 58, verse 3. So look back at chapter 58, verse 3, where the merely religious, externally ritualistic Israel complains in verse 3 and 4. Why have we fasted and you, God, see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Religious Israel doesn't understand why God doesn't respond to their worship. They say, we're fasting, we're praying, we're crying out asking you for your blessings, and it's as if you don't hear and you don't care. Why? Chapter 59 is the answer to that question. Look at verse 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it can't save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. The problem is not the Lord. Verse 2, the problem is you. Look at verse 2. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. The Lord is not powerless to save. He is not unconcerned about your prayers. But the Lord is holy. And he dwells with the humble. Not the hypocritically religious, not those who go through the emotions of outward external religion, doing your duty, but your heart is far from God. God is holy, and he told us in chapter 57, verse 15, that he dwells with those who are lowly and of a contrite heart not those who possess a merely external religion. So chapter 59 in this context is speaking to the religious but unbelieving people of Israel, not the imperfect people of faith. But make no mistake, friends, our sin is always the problem and God is always the solution. 
James picked up this same thought in chapter 4 when when James, talking to, the God, uh, to God's people, said, You ask, and you don't receive, because you ask wrongly, so that you can spend it on your own passions. His answer was, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your heart, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he'll lift you up. James's answer was the same as Isaiah's. God dwells not with those who go through the religious motions and do all of the right things externally, but God dwells with those. He hears the prayers. He exercises his arm to save those who are humble and poor in spirit, who have nothing to bring God and only empty hands to receive what they desperately need. So chapter 59 begins by saying, the problem is not the Lord, it's your sin that separates you from God. And then notice in verse 1 through 8, he gives a very detailed and vivid description of our sin. This is not just the sin of the externally religious, but this is all of our sin. From the most pious person here, anytime we disobey God, anytime we allow sin in our hearts, in our mouths, through our hands, in our Minds, this is what sin looks like. Chapter 3 through 8 tells us that our sin affects every part of our lives. Look in verse 3. Our hands, our fingers, our lips, our tongue. Look in verse 7. Our feet, our thoughts. Even down to the motives in verse 4. Look, the, the motives is what we conceive. This is demonstrating the doctrine of the total depravity of man. The total depravity man does not mean that every person is as bad as they can be. It means that sin has corrupted every part of our being. Our hands, our fingers, our lips, our tongue, our feet, our thoughts. This particular passage teaches us that our sin at essence is self-serving. And that it does violence to others. Did you ever think about that? That when we're selfish, our self-centeredness, our self-serving is doing violence to others. Notice from 3 through 8, in the beginning, verse 3. It's not just that our hands are sinful, but what are they? They're defiled with blood. It's not just that our lips are wicked, but our our lips have spoken lies to other people. In verse 7, at the end, our feet are swift to shed what? Innocent blood. And in the middle of all of that, this whole thing about, about snake eggs and spider's webs, our sin uses the law against other people to defend ourselves and to get our way. This is social injustice. In verse 5 and 6, sin tries to hide our true motives. Look there in verse 5 and 6. 
It tries to disguise our motives as being good and lawful, but our plan is when our plan is hatched, it's really a web of violence against other people. And that's what our self-centeredness does. It uses and abuses other people to serve self. And that's exactly how chapter 58 described our religion. Not just our religion, but the religion of the externally religious people here in, in Israel at that time. They were praying to God to get what they wanted. The problem is that God did not want to give them what they wanted because they were consuming it on their own selfish lusts. In other words, they were using God to benefit themselves. God exists to serve me. Just like others exist to serve me. Our sin is self-serving and that does violence to other people. See, friends, anytime we sin, it fundamentally breaks what Jesus says is the essence of our responsibility to God and man. Jesus said the first and second great commandment is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love others as yourself. Loving God and loving others is in contrast to what? Loving self. And so Jesus says, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. This is the whole law and prophets summed up. I wonder, do you see self-centeredness and work in your own heart, in your own hands, in your own mind? Ask yourself the question, do you see your own self-centeredness at work in your relationships? At home? At work? In your greater family? We can see very easily self-centeredness when we look at our little kids, can't we? I mean, somebody picks up a toy, and it happens to be brother's toy, and brother comes in, gives him the bow, and takes his toy back. Selfishness. That's not others-mindedness. And yet we do the very same thing. We just don't do it so flagrantly. <laughs> we weave our webs and hatch our plans to get what we want. And friends, our sin always takes us to a bad place. Look how this particular section ends here in verse 7 and 8. Sin always leads us down the road to a bad place. Look at it there at the end of 7 and 8. How many metaphors are used? Highways, way, path, roads. Do you see all of those? That's no accident. What Isaiah is doing here is he's telling us that man's ways... His highways, his paths, his road, they always lead to destruction. But God's ways, they alone lead to peace and justice. Look in verse 8. The way of peace, they don't know. There is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked, and no one who treads on them knows peace. 
John Oswald says it this way, whatever else the world might offer us, it can never offer us peace. Our way and the world's way will never end up where we want to go. Only God's way does. That's why Proverbs 14 says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end is the end of death. And Jesus said in Matthew 7, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And then in this next section, verse 9 through 15, we find out that our sin always leads to chaos in society. (laughs) It's not only self-centered and it leads to a bad place, but that place is namely chaos in our society. In verse 9 through 15 there, look at especially the beginning, verse 9, and the end, verse 15, and notice this triad of justice, righteousness, and truth. Do you see there at verse 9? Justice and righteousness, and then light being truth. And then look again at verse 14 and verse 15, justice, righteousness, and truth. Justice, righteousness, and truth are the foundations for peace in society. But our sin, our path, our highway never leads to that. It always creates chaos in society. So here in verse 9 through 15, we see this image of chaos, dark and desperate situation. Notice that they're, they're, uh, they're hoping and groping for peace, but they can't find it. They're stumbling at noon. They're feeling along the walls in the middle of the day as if it's dark. Note, look, they're like dead men walking among the living. They're growling like hungry bears and moaning like doves. All of these images are to show us that our sin leads to chaos and darkness in society rather than the peace that God means for us. And so in verse 15, Uh, 12 through 15, they confess it. Look there in verse 12. Why is this chaos happening? Because our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. Our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities. Why? Verse 13, they have turned away from the Lord to follow their own ways. Our sin always leads us to chaos because we reject the very foundations of what God means to make our society and our relationships peaceful. What is that? Justice, righteousness, and truth. Think about those three words for a moment. To understand them in this context, we're going to have to flip them over. What's truth? It's what's right before God. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. It's what we can depend on and be certain about. What's righteousness? 
its truth lived out, especially toward others. Truth is what God says is right. Righteousness is that truth and that right lived out in a life, especially toward others. And what is justice? It's that right, that truth, as it governs our whole society, as it determines the norms for everyone in society and decides disputes between individuals. Truth, what's right. Righteousness is right lived out. Justice is right that governs society. This is the foundation for a peaceful society. The problem is that when we follow our way, we reject God's truth, God's righteousness, and therefore God's justice. Think about it this way. If we reject God's truth as ultimate authority, which our society has done, then we live as if my truth and your truth are the same. Which means that my way and your way are both right. Which ultimately destroys the foundation of justice and being able to determine the norms for society and what's right and wrong for everyone. And we can see that in our society very easily, can't we? We can see how our society has rejected God's truth, God's righteousness, and God's justice. But I wonder if you can see that at work in your own relationships. I wonder if we can see that at work in our own marriage. Do we really live according to God's truth in our marriages and God's truth in our parenting and God's truth in our work and in our families? Because if we did, then his truth would determine how we live and how we treat each other, which would establish a relationship of peace. So what's the problem? The problem's not the Lord, it's our sin. Self-centeredness that ultimately establishes my truth and my life in our relationships. It's always going to lead to chaos. So what's going to take us from self-loving people to actually loving God and loving others the way God designed this be. What's going to take us from relationships defined by chaos and a society that has rejected God's truth to relationships and a society that is as God intended it to be? What's going to get us there? Can we save us from us? The solution is at the end of chapter 15 through 21. Look at 15b. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. 
he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. Verse 20, a redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. The problem is our sin, friends, and the solution is that God sees our sin and sent a Redeemer to save us from ourselves. John Oswald again says, the great hope of the world is that God sees. Aren't you so glad? That God sees. What does he see? He sees our sin. God sees our chaos. And rather than destroying us for it, God sends a redeemer to rescue us from ourselves. So in verse 16, The Lord, through the power of his own arm, brings salvation. It's a redeemer who comes to Zion, to those in Zion who turn from their self-loving ways. Notice in verse 17 that this redeemer is clothed for battle with the very righteousness that we reject. He's a divine warrior. Verse 17, he put on righteousness as a breastplate, a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself as zeal, as a cloak. And later, God's people are going to be clothed with this same armor in Ephesians chapter 6 and First Thessalonians chapter 5. This divine warrior who will redeem God's people is the Lord Jesus Christ. And this redeemer does three things. Look in verse 18 through 21. Number one, he defeats God's enemies. Look there in verse 18 and 19. Notice that this redeemer repays with justice. He gives back what they deserve. The cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, is a war on sin and death that results in the worldwide glory of God, the reconciliation of sinners, and justice of God being set up in his kingdom forever. Number two, look in verse 20. Not only does he defeat God's enemies, but he redeems who? Not all of Israel. And not all of the earth. Who does this redeemer redeem in verse 20? Those in Jacob who turn from transgression. What's the transgression? Everything that they just, he just listed in three through eight, right? Who turn from chapter 58, their external religion, their ritualism who turn from their self-centeredness that uses God and uses others. 
He redeems those who repent from sin. And then in verse 21, what does he do after he defeats God's enemies and redeems those who repent? He restores Israel to be God's representative to the nations. Verse 21, look at this. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth. Stop. Who's your and you? In context, who do you think that is? I read it as the Redeemer. I read it that God has put his spirit on his Redeemer and his words in the Redeemer's mouth. Some would say that he's speaking of Isaiah here, his servant, his prophet. No problem. As for me, this is my covenant, says the Lord. My spirit that I put on you, Isaiah, and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth. Great, no problem. I think it's talking about the greater prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ, the redeemer that he just referenced in chapter, in verse 15 through 20. Regardless, here's God's promise. Not just that he's going to put his spirit and word either in his prophet or in his redeemer, but that his spirit and his word is going somewhere else. Where? To those who are connected to the redeemer by faith. The offspring. My spirit that is upon you. My words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of your offspring or the out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth or forevermore. The new covenant. You see that word there, covenant in verse 21? The new covenant that is made between God and his people the true people of faith Israel, is that God's spirit and God's word that was on his redeemer will be in his people forevermore. Why? In context, why does this whole context end with God putting his spirit and his word into his people? What spirit has he just exposed as being utterly sinful? The spirit of self-love. So he replaces our old sinful spirit with his holy spirit. And what is the result of his spirit dwelling in his people? That they speak his words, his truth that leads to righteousness, that leads to justice in our society. And that's exactly what we see happening when the gospel of Jesus Christ is fulfilled and Acts chapter 1 happens. Jesus ascends to heaven and what happens? The Holy Spirit of God descends on his people. And immediately upon being filled with the Spirit, what do they do? They speak the truth of the gospel. Chapter 2. 
Peter preaches the gospel to the nations. That's the original plan that God had for his people, that Israel would be a representative to the nations. And the entire book of Isaiah has been this. You're not being a representative of me to the nations. You've adopted the idols of the nations. So I'm going to purify you. And the end result of God sending his redeemer is not merely to destroy his enemies and not merely to redeem his people. The end result of God sending his redeemer is to fill his people so that his people will represent him to the world. You're not done just because you're justified. God's not through with you just because you're being sanctified. God saved you so that you would live for him and put his truth, right living, and justice on display in every relationship that you have in your marriage, in your parenting, at work, at home, at play. And God fulfilled the entire gospel by giving you the same spirit that he gave his redeemer, Jesus, and the same word so that you would be able to accomplish his purposes. Friends, the problem is always our self-centered sin. If you see chaos in your life, if you see chaos in any of your relationships, the problem is always our sin. And it's going to go back to us serving and loving self. The solution is always God seeing it and not leaving us to ourselves but rescuing us by sending a Redeemer out of His grace and mercy toward His people. Christian friend, how do you live this out on a daily basis? Can I just suggest a few ways? This is lived out every single day of your life by being thankful that God has rescued you from yourself through his son. This is lived out every day in a life of constantly repenting of our self-serving. Selfishness is not just a toddler thing. Man, am I ever selfish. Every day repenting of our selfishness. It's lived out in a life of submitting to God through his spirit and his word. And it's lived out in living as God's servants in order to draw the nations and our neighbors to him. 
Let's pray together. Father, I I thank you so much for um, your grace to us to not leave us in our self-love. But you have rescued us from ourselves. There's no way we could have ever done that. But you sacrificed yourself to save us from ourselves. And then you gave us a new spirit and brought us into a new community, the church, so that we can live out the gospel and put you on display. And I pray, God, that you would do that here in Winchester through us. I pray that you would do it for your glory so that many of our neighbors and the nations might come to Mount Zion to be saved. Thank you in Jesus' name.